Corinthians chapter 5 uh, this afternoon. It's a pleasure uh, to be before you again to proclaim God's Word. And um, I appreciate Adam leading us uh, each week. And particularly, as you notice, uh, we are structuring our service to be as uh, emphatic about the Word of God and the way in which the Word of God um, brings us to different places in our life as believers. And we are seeing that model in the structure of this service. And um, so that's what you are uh, kind of participating in um, in, this, in this time. Um, we are uh, finishing up, as I said, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, and we've been looking at uh, striving for holiness through church discipline and how important it is for us as believers in Jesus Christ, the gathered church, to strive for the holiness in each one of our lives individually and corporately. And the Lord has given us to structure this process that we might practice as believers so that we might live holy and that we might keep uh, the church or we might strive to keep the church holy in all of its efforts and its ways. Um, Years ago, I read a story. It's one of my favorite stories. I was able to use it many times in preaching. And it's about a, a small weasel-like uh, creature that is often referred to as a, a stoat or an ermine. And uh, this is, a, 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 like I said, a weasel uh, in the weasel family. And in the summertime, it's a, it's a brown-colored coat. Um, but in the wintertime, it, it sheds that coat and becomes beautifully and perfectly white. And uh, hunters and, and poachers love this animal uh, to, um, to get its, its pelt and to obviously sell it for different furs and things of that nature. And so it is a, it's a huge market for this animal. And one of the ways in which they hunt this animal in the winter, with it being in a, in a cold climate where there's lots of snow, um, it's oftentimes you know, they're tracking this and they're using dogs and, and they'll release the dogs um, to, to hunt this animal down. But the way in which they catch the animal is they find its den first and they smear like brine and different things on the edge of the entryway to its, uh, to its den. And as they release the dogs and the little urban weasel runs back to its home, it sees the dirt and the grime on the outside of, the, of its home, and it will refuse to go in to, to, to contain or to remain, the, uh, to contain the purity of its coat. And therefore, because it refuses to go in, it is captured. And it's, it's an astonishing story to me because of the desire that this animal has, the recognition that it has of this dirt and grime in the ways in which it wants to keep its coat clean and therefore uh, refuses to go to its safe place and shelter. And I think it's a great uh, illustration for us as a church when we consider what links do we go to to strive for purity in the church. As I've told you in the last three weeks, uh, there is a lack of purity in our churches. It's a lack of obedience to the Word of God. We're not obeying the word in the way in which God has structured the church as a corporate body and individually in our own lives. And we oftentimes allow sin 
because we have labeled and, and categorized sin so that we would say, well, that's not that big of a deal. We're going to focus on the major issues and not the minor issues. When truthfully, there are things that we can disagree on, um, and but there are uh, ways in which God has called us to live as holy people to reflect His holiness, and therefore we must strive to be holy, and in doing so, practice church discipline. Church discipline is the way that the Lord has instilled us to carry out that in His body, which Jesus Christ died for. And so if we look through chapter 5, um, in the last three weeks, uh, let me ke catch us up on that. We've looked at the need for church discipline. We've seen the, the application that Paul says in, in, in verses 1 through 5 about the, the sexual morality that's been found in the church in Corinth. And just like any sin, uh, the church was supposed to deal with it. They were supposed to react and engage in that uh, person's life for the betterment of that person, to admonish that person, and they chose to not do that. And in doing so, the, the, the church became diseased. And, and, and as it became diseased, it became, uh, began to corrupt the other people, um, as sin clearly does. And so Paul has to step in, and he has to remind them of their pride and their arrogance that has allowed them to be blinded to sin. He calls and rebukes them because, as he says in verse 2, that they have become arrogant and have not mourned over the sin that's among them. And so as we've said, 1 Corinthians chapter 5 really isn't even addressing the sin of this man as much as it is the sin of the church who's ignored the sin of the man that's among them. And the whole purpose is so that the church would be holy, that sin would be removed and dealt with. And so we've talked about the difficulty of church discipline. One of the things that we practice here at Redemption Community Church is, with our students and our young people, is we desire for people in our church that profess the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to be mature members. So we don't baptize little children. We don't baptize young people. We don't deny the fact that children can come to Christ. But we understand the Bible as uh, in relating baptism, which is our outward sign of an inward commitment to Christ, in connection with our membership to a church. And therefore, in that practice, we say well, we want to, as elders, assess and understand that the child that, that, that is confessing Jesus Christ not only understands the gospel and shows some fruit and evidence of their faith, but can, because baptism is connected to membership, be a mature member of redemption. Right? That doesn't mean a junior member. That doesn't mean a, a halfway member. That means someone that can understand the, the needs of the church, that can understand the, the, the decisions of the church. And most importantly, if they fall into sin, not only do they deal with or, or, or dealt with the loving parents that surround them and care for them spiritually, but the, the elders of the church and, and you as, as it, its loving body would also speak into the life of that young person that can, is considered a mature member. And if we consider that process, can you imagine a four-year-old going through church discipline? Can you imagine what that would look like from a corporate level? Or a, a six-year-old even? So we want our, our students, 
in particular to know the gospel, but to understand its relationship and its correlation to baptism and church membership. And the reason why is because in some form or fashion, whether it be corporately, individually, with a sister and a sister having a conversation in the body of Christ about sin and her life, or a, uh, a corporate dealing with sin whereby we have to excommunicate someone, obviously you want someone to be a mature member in that. And that's what Paul is dealing with here. He is dealing with such a gross uh, level of sexual sin in the church that what does he have to do? As the apostle, step in to deal with this situation because the church has been disobedient to follow church discipline. And so throughout chapter 5, first in the need for church discipline, and then verses 6 through 8, the picture of church discipline, and then finally in our passage today, the application of it. In all three of those, he makes clear declarations about the need for excommunicating this person, this man, because of his gross and immoral sin. It's gotten to the point of a lack of repentance, that this person needs to be removed from the church body for the sake of, one, the church body, two, the man, and ultimately the holiness of God. All three of those as the purpose by which we practice church discipline. First, Paul talks about the, the way in which it corrupts the body. In 6 through 8, last week we talked about the example of leaven. And how the leaven in the bread that can become corrupted with bacteria is passed from one loaf to the other through cultural means and particularly in Israel. And that, that, that bacteria is passed corrupting the whole loaf or the whole dough. And in the same way, we as believers, if we don't deal with sin in the church, it can lead to our corruption. So it's for our benefit that sin is dealt with. But secondly, it's for the brother's benefit. Back in chapter 5, verse 5, he says, I have decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. It's for the man's benefit that sin would be so addressed and dealt with according to the word of God, so that perhaps by God's grace, this man would see the weight of his sin. He would see the separation because of his sin with God and God's people, and therefore he would repent and be saved. So Paul gives us the need for church discipline, the picture for church discipline, and finally today we're going to look at the application. And Paul kind of circles the wagon back. He, he kind of makes an address to them in verses 1 through 5. He illustrates it in verses 6 through 8. And then he comes back around in verses 9 through 13 to make some clarif clarifying statements and then kind of some, some final repetitious uh, commands to the church. Notice in verse 9, he focuses on, in verses 9 and 10, the recipients of church discipline. The recipients of church discipline. As I told you before, and, and it's helpful for us to understand the First Corinthians, this is the second letter that Paul has written that, uh, that we know of uh, to the church in Corinth. We call the first letter the previous letter. It's not contained in the canon of Scripture. First Corinthians is actually the second letter. Matter of fact, we see that in verse 9. I wrote to you in my letter 
not to associate with immoral people. I did not at all mean with immoral people of this world or with the covetousness and swindlers or idolaters, for then you would have to go out of the world. So notice that Paul's already written a letter, and in their arrogance and dependence upon man's wisdom, they have responded to him with criticism toward Paul, with, a, with a, an unfriendly kind of response, a lack of repentance in that response. And so now Paul writes 1 Corinthians and says, listen, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with immoral people, but obviously there's some clarification that needs to happen. Who are the recipients of church discipline? And he has to clarify to them. The word associate in this passage, he uses it three times. It means to mingle with, to mix with, as if ingredients were mixed together. And so what he's saying is that as believers in Jesus Christ, he goes, I'm not commanding you to forbid mingling with the world. Well, what does he mean by that? Well, we're going to look at uh, a couple uh, meanings for that, some things that he's teaching us there, so that we might understand who are truly the recipients of church discipline. And Paul's saying, well, it's not the world. Unbelievers are not recipients of church discipline because we have a desire and a calling to be gospel witnesses to the world. So it's not talking about the world. He says in verse 10, I do not all mean the immoral people of this world or the covetousness and swindlers or idolaters, for then you would have to go out of the world. Well, we're all familiar with the, the, the call for the, of the gospel for us not to leave the world. That is, that literally the Lord Jesus Christ, He ascended to heaven, but He left us in the world to be a gospel witness and a gospel light, to go and make disciples. In the book of John, verse 17, He's praying to the Father. He says, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Our responsibility in this world is to remain here until Christ returns and be the gospel light and the gospel witness. Therefore, call, call them to not leave the world. Paul clarifies. He's saying, don't. I'm not talking about a, a, a prohibition of association with uh, the lost people of this world. Because if so, how would you be the gospel witness? These immoral people, he says, as we talk about, which is the sexually immoral, the, the covetousness and the greedy of the world, those who desire and cheat those who lust for some other people's possessions and treasures, the swindlers of the world, the ones who, that word literally means to rob and seize and steal by force, and ultimately, he says, that the idolaters of the world. This makeup of people is really just a small list of different types of people in the world that we're trying to reach with the gospel. For us to be removed doesn't allow us to uh, effectually uh, reach them with the gospel. And in the same way, we cannot hold them to the spiritual practices of church discipline in the church because they don't belong to the church. So what this means is, is that we are called to reconcile with people. To seek peace with all people. 
But you know as well as I do that the lost in the world, the unbelievers in the world, they're not held to some standard by God or some moral conviction to be reconciled with you when you're in conflict with them. Matter of fact, you shouldn't even expect it. You shouldn't expect the world to act like believers that are convicted by Ephesians chapter 4 verse 32 that says that we forgive as Christ has forgiven us. Don't expect them to feel that way. <clears throat> they're going to scoff at you. They're going to laugh at you. They're going to hate you. They're probably not going to forgive you. And if they do forgive you, they don't really even truly understand the true definition of forgiveness. That's why they are blinded by their sin. And so we don't leave the world because of our gospel witness, because Jesus has told us that we are here to stay, to proclaim the truth of the gospel to them. And as gospel witnesses in the world, we also should be reminded that we're not only to not leave the world, but we're not to look like the world. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, we're reminded by the Apostle Peter that we are aliens and strangers. We don't belong here as the church. We are foreigners in a foreign land. And in doing so, we are to live holy lives, to abstain, he says, from fleshly lusts which wage war against our soul. To keep our behavior excellent among the Gentiles. So that in this thing which they slander you as evildoers, they may... They may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. Now notice with me. Paul says, look, I don't, I'm not telling you not to associate with unbelievers. But then the, the negative is that we should, therefore, be a, a, a sense of gospel light in their lives. And how do we live as gospel lights? We live as gospel lights by not living as they live. By not looking like they do. So that we stand out in contrast in the holiness that in which we live. So that we don't just blend in with them. You know, it's an interesting story in my family. My brother-in-law and sister-in-law were missionaries in Spain for three years. And we went over there. Um, I don't really remember what year it was. Peter was young. So I would guess it was nine years ago. And uh, got to do some interesting things over in Madrid. I got to see a bullfight, which was pretty neat. Um, it was, I think, the last area of Spain that allowed bullfighting to happen. And a year after we left, my brother-in-law ran with the bulls. Now, you know what's interesting about running with the bulls? Is that when you start off and you start running, you blend in with everybody else running. You're not out there. Your family's not out there going, man, look, look, at, look at David Barnes running away from the bulls because it's literally a mob of people just running down the street trying not to get, you know, speared by the, the, the horns of the bull. Can you imagine what it would look like if my brother-in-law turns the opposite direction and heads straight toward the bull? Like, I'm going to show him. But that's exactly the way that Christ wants us to live in this world. Not idiotic. But against the direction, against the grain, living for holiness, not blending in and mingling with the culture in such a way that we look like them. So we're not to live, we're not to leave the world, we're not to look like the world, 
And we do not look like the world because we don't love the world. Because we're striving for holiness, we don't love the things of the world. First John tells us, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life is not from the Father. It's from the world. And the world is passing away and also its lusts. But the one who does the will of God lives forever. And so we come to this understanding that Paul is not telling us to disassociate with those unbelievers. And in our remaining in the world, in our interaction with the world, we're not to love the things of the world, we're not to leave the world, and we're definitely not to look like the world. And so when we don't love the things of the world, it's because we love the things of God and we cherish the things that God has commanded us to do, that we reflect the image of God's Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. That we are standing apart from what the world says and the ideologies and the philosophies of this world. And being in the world but not of the world means that we have to be careful to turn away from the temptation to worship and love the things that the world portrays and teaches. The church must be vigilant and ready with the word of God in our hearts so that we are not tempted to love the world, but instead we combat that desire, the wrestling of our flesh with the holy things of God. Parents, if I could for a minute encourage you to consider these things, that as we stand so far apart from the world in our dealings as, as moms and dads, let me encourage you to consider in such a dire time in history the worldly influences that we see today in our school system. I'm so scared and, 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 and resting in the, 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 the sovereignty of God and yet warning you with all pastoral care and love that I can for you to be so considerate of what your children are learning in school systems today. You know, when I was a young pastor and a young father, we decided to homeschool our kids. And I understand I'm an advocate for homeschool. I know not every family can do such things. But in the world that we live in today, homeschooling back then was a as an option, it was a, a, a helpful thing, now it almost seems needed. Because back then there were great public schools with great Christian teachers that stood upon the Word of God and school systems and school boards stood upon the Word of God. And they weren't teaching such godless and anti-Christ theologies or philosophies to our children. Even Christian teachers today their, their rights are being stripped away from them, so they're being forced to teach your children anti-God truths. Errors that, that point us away from the, the biblical truth of God's Word. <clears throat> Things that are soaked in humanism, and atheism, and socialism. And I'm, I'm deeply concerned for our children. And when we began to homeschool our kids, 
didn't get a whole lot of pushback, but the pushback that I got usually sounded something like this. It wasn't questions about what we're going to do as a homeschool family. It was always this statement in some form or fashion. Well, I'm sending my kids to school to be missionaries in the lost world. And I think that in this day and age, we really need to consider what that means. Because the truth of the matter is, and Bodie Bauckham said this in an interview last week, he says, our children are not missionaries, they are the mission field. We cannot consider our young children particularly to be believers in Jesus Christ that don't know the gospel, that don't understand sin, that haven't put their faith in Christ. And so they're going to public education and what are they they're getting all day long? They're being in, in, uh, overwhelmed with these theology or these philosophies of worldliness that cut away the, the truths that you are teaching them as moms and dads. And in doing so, you're having to retract so many things that they're learning. And this isn't just from their teachers. This is from the school books that they read. Evolutionary thought, humanistic thought. Psychological thought. They're not teaching the doctrine of sin. And so even if your kids are believers, even if they are saved, and they're growing in Christ, are they trained as missionaries to go out into the world? That's the thing you have to wrestle with. Young parents here today, as you consider how you will educate your children, are they trained missionaries? If they know Christ, are they ready to go out on the mission field? I say all this because I don't want your children to love the things of the world. But I know the world wants your children to love the things of the world. And we have to be so careful as we raise them and train them that not only are we teaching them in our family worship the things and the doctrine of God and the truth of Christ, that we're pouring the gospel into them, but that we are preparing them and training them in such a way so that when they are mature, they can understand these truths and they can hold fast to the temptations, then they are ready to be those who counteract the true uh, dangers in the world. That they can have mature fruit and they can be lights of the gospel in the world around them. Consider that, families and parents. Because the Bible tells us that we are not to look like the world, not to love the world. And then finally, back to what Paul is saying in chapter 5. Therefore, we're not called to judge the world. We're not supposed to leave it. We're not supposed to look like it or love it. And we're definitely not called to judge the world. We're just called to warn them. Look at verse 12 and 13. What do I have with judging outsiders? Do you not judge those who are within the church? Those who are outside, God judges. Remove the wicked man from among yourselves. Paul's simply saying that the church's role is to declare the truth of the world, to be the gospel witness before unbelievers. But we trust that God and the Lord Jesus Christ in particular is the sovereign Lord of all. He's been given the authority by the Father and therefore He will judge those unbelievers. 
Until then, the church rests in God's ultimate and final judgment for their sin. We are called to be faithful gospel witnesses. We are called to warn the world of the impending judgment and pointing them to the hope that Christ offers alone. So Paul is dealing with the gospel witnesses in the world and secondly, God's authority for the church. The second aspect of recipients of church discipline are the church, not the world. And God is so instilled and authority over the church as the Lord Jesus is the head of the church. He has given spiritual authority to each one of us so that we might be an authority spiritually because of our relationship with Christ and our union with Christ. We are spiritual authorities for one another. Not just the elders. It's not just what my pastor said to do this. But my brother or sister in Christ is admonishing me, is pointing me back to the gospel. We are wed in Christ and united with Christ. Therefore, the authority is found in God's word that we point people to. Therefore, the spiritual authority rests in Jesus and his word. We are recipient or we are deliverers or messengers of that word as we admonish one another. This is the authority that God has established in the church. And Paul is dealing with this in chapter 5. Church, you should have dealt with this man's sin. But instead you fall into boasting and pride and arrogance. Thinking that this sin did not need to be dealt with. And therefore, Paul has to step in and demand that they practice excommunication. And as we said, excommunication seems like a heartless and restless or a reckless act, but the truth is, is that excommunication is an aspect of love. It's a loving act where the spiritual family participates in disciplining those whom they love, and in loving them, they want to see them come to repentance. An unholy church does nothing when sin surfaces. Therefore, God has given the church authority over one another because it belongs to Christ, and Christ is that authority. And the church practices that authority because we love Christ. We find the, the ways in which to practice such authority in the words of God. So we are not demanding some authority in ourselves. We are simply resting in the authority that God has given each one of us as believers. Redeemed by his blood as brothers and sisters in Christ that are united to one another. That's why this union that we have together is a family union. In our family, in our family union, not family reunion, in our family union, we are to live life together. And in living life together, we are to call each other to uh, helpful wisdom and helpful correction. This is the, the whole process in which church discipline exists. And the problem with that in the Western church is that the Western church is an individualistic church. I'm reading a book by a man named Joseph Kellerman, When the Church Was a Family. And he's writing about the differences between the individualistic West and the different decision-making uh, uh, 
the, the different decisions that were made in the Eastern churches, the Middle East, and so on and so forth, in a more communal way. And he's relating it all back to the Bible, because this is the life and the culture that Jesus lived and the Jews lived. This is what he says. He says, people in biblical times simply did not just make life decisions on their own. An ancient Israelite, for example, typically did not determine whom he was going to marry, what he was going to do for a living, or where he was going to live. All these decisions were made for him by his community. That is, by the family and the broader society to which he belonged, the context for wise decisions came to be a formal one, like meeting with a pastor, but often more, it came in a less structured way, organically, with long-term relationships of brothers and sisters in the church, speaking wisdom into each, one of those, each other's lives in a variety of settings. Now I want you to think about this for a minute, because this is like, reading this book is like rock my world because I'm immersed in individualism, and you are too, you just don't know it. I want you to think about when you decided to get married, what participation did your family really have in that decision? It was probably approved by your family, but it wasn't built on your family and their decision. It was built upon love, right? It was built upon emotion and connection, right? But in the Eastern culture, who you married was determined by your family, and oftentimes it wasn't based upon, oh, well, they make a great couple. They're so pretty together. They're so hardworking as, a, as companions together. It was based upon socioeconomic needs. What benefits the community if these, this man and this woman come together? How does this help the larger group of people? And the same with a, a job and a place to live. It wasn't built on what you wanted to do in your life. It was built upon what did the community think you should do in your life. Now, I know that's, that's, that's kind of mind-blowing to us. But this is the kind of culture that the early church was founded in. They were living in Acts chapter 2 and 3. They were living in such a community that they were sharing all things together. That they had this relationship where they were selling property for the good of the church, not their individual pocketbooks. Matter of fact, Ananias and Sapphira were literally killed in a judgment for God because they were being individualistic and lying to the Holy Spirit. So what's my point? Is that when we come to understand the community aspect of the church, then spiritual authority over each one of our lives is not that difficult to grasp. Because God has designed it in such a way that we live life together. We don't just come to church and go home. We give each other wise counsel. You want to move to another place in the country? Are you asking your church about it? You want to change careers that's going to have an, uh, an economic impact on your life? What does your church have to say about it? What does your family, your, your spiritual family, what input have they given? Because as you know, a lot of times in our spiritual lives, our biological family begins to separate because of a difference in theology and understanding of God. We begin distant with them because they're not believers in Jesus Christ. Which, by the way, makes them give poor wisdom, unbiblical wisdom. But your spiritual family is there to help you, to point you not to their 
of God. How involved are they in your life in helping you make those decisions? Because if we change our mindset, church, about what a community and a family of, of, of faith really is, it really does revolutionize how we do life. As you raise your kids, not only do you want to direct their behavior in relationship to Christ, but you want to have an input in their decisions. Hasn't the Lord given you an authority in such a way that you're responsible to make sure their relationship choices are wise, their career choices are wise, their future choices are wise with the faith that they have in Christ? Well, shouldn't the church do the same thing? Because God's given us authority. And Paul is demonstrating this authority not only is the apostle that helped start this church, but he's calling the church itself to practice such authority by striving for holiness through excommunicating this man. He's basically telling them, you have the authority to do so, and you are called to be faithful to do it. So we talk about the recipients of church discipline, and secondly, we want to look at the extent. And it's just simple. He gives them two commands. Number one, he says, remove them. Remove this person. Now, we know that according to Matthew chapter 18, excommunication or removing some brother or sister because of sin is the final step in church discipline. We don't know the scenario in 1 Corinthians perfectly, but we know at least that if the Apostle Paul is stepping in, that there's been time of a poor or a lack of, of, of repentance in this, this person's life. So much so that excommunication is the final step because there has been no remorse over sin. And therefore, he, he, makes the, he paints the picture with the, the leaven and the dough, and he's once again calling them, remove the wicked man from among you. Why? Because you're not called to associate with such a brother. That for the sake of the holiness of God, those who are immoral, those who are covetous, those who are idolaters and revelers and drunks and, and swindlers, there's supposed to be a separation between us and them for the sake of God's holiness. It doesn't change God's holiness. It reflects God's holiness. As the, as the Jews were not allowed to, to approach Mount Sinai because the, the Lord's holiness was, was radiating the mountain. And if they even touched the mountain with their hands, they would have been killed. Why? To show them the severity of sin and the holiness of God when it comes in conflict. That's how we should think. When Isaiah chapter 6, when Isaiah has the vision of the Lord... That literally the, the holiness of God that's shaking the temple and filling the temple with smoke, reflecting his power and his glory. The only thing that Isaiah can do in the presence of that holiness is repent and confess his sin. And so we as a church and as believers, we practice individually cleaning the cupboard of disease and corruption in our own lives. And corporately removing those who are refusing to turn from sin, refusing to live in holiness. We are called to remove them. And the challenge with that is, is that oftentimes we might 
remove someone from church membership. And we say in, in some formal way that we love you and we, we care about your, um, your life, your spiritual future. We don't want you to face the wrath of God. But Jesus says that if they are repentant, consider them an unbeliever. So removing them is saying you can no longer be a member of a church and we no longer consider you a believer in Jesus Christ. It's a powerful statement. How can I say such a thing, pastor? The Lord's giving you authority to do that. What authority do you have? The authority of Jesus Christ and the word of God that defines that you will know a person by his fruits. The fruits manifested by the Holy Spirit so that you can know and because you know and you can see evidence or a lack of evidence, therefore you have the authority in the, by the Lord Jesus in his name and his church to remove such a one. So if that, comes down, if that ever comes to a, a point here, the elders don't get together and go, okay, who are we removing from the church roles? What do we do as a church? We vote on it. You make that vote. All believers in the church that are united together have to make that decision to remove them, not just from some institutionalized role, but to literally say, I consider them an unbeliever. By the name of Jesus Christ and a desire for the purity of the church. But as you can imagine, the application of that to remove them comes with some social difficulties. Ladies and gentlemen, if this is your best friend that's being removed from the church because of an unrepentant heart, most likely a situation that you've already engaged in with them, you've already called them to repentance, and they've ignored you, they've, you took two or three witnesses, and they ignored them, you brought it to the church. The church addressed it with them. They ignored them, and now you are considering them an unbeliever. Well, what do you do after that? What do you do at the next playground date that comes up where they want to go hang out at the local playground? Well, Paul gives us the answer. He says you're not to eat with them. He says you're not to associate with them. Look at uh, 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. He says it very clearly using the same language. If anyone does not obey your instruction in this letter, take special note of that person. Do not associate with them. Same wording. So that he will be put to shame. Yet do not regard him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. Now somewhere in this uh, passage in 2 Thessalonians, even Paul is calling them to an earlier step in the process because he says, admonish him as a brother. So they're not yet at the point in which they have excommunicated this person in 2 Thessalonians. And yet he talks about not associating with those who are unrepentant sinners in the church so that they may be put to shame. Why is that important? Because sinners need to know the consequences of sin. Not just the consequences of driving drunk and getting a DUI, but the consequences of relational separation. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, he tells us not even to eat with such a one. That fellowship over the table is, is such a clear designation to say, your sin is so great that I have to separate from you. 
To show you the power of, of, of Christ's holiness and the need for sin to be separated from such a thing. And as the Holy Spirit so leads and guides the Apostle Paul, he always leads him back to the Old Testament. And I want you to consider, uh, for time's sake, I'm just going to give us one passage today. Consider how the Old Testament, how the Lord commanded Israel to deal with sinners in their midst as a community. Deuteronomy chapter 13. But that prophet or the dreamer of dreams shall be put to death because he has counted rebellion against the Lord your God who brought you from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery to seduce you from the way in which the Lord your God commanded you to walk. So you shall purge the evil from among you. Paul's quoting that in 1st uh, Corinthians chapter 5 reminding them that in Israel you didn't just excommunicate a person and the man a woman continued to live on, you literally destroyed them. As a sign that says sin is serious before a holy God. And so really excommunication is, is mercy. When we think about the Lord's slow not considering all to, uh, to be perishing or to perish, but to come to repentance. The Lord is slow in His hand of justice and His hand of, of retribution and judgment to allow even an excommunicated brother or sister time to reflect upon their own sin, even as a church has removed them so that they may be so shamed because of their sin that they would literally... See Christ as beautiful and satisfying, and they would trust in Him instead of being killed for their sin, as they did in the Old Testament. So He calls them to remove them, and secondly, as I said, to reject them. Now, when we talk about rejection, we talk about a breaking ties with them socially. Doesn't mean they're not allowed to come to church. Obviously, it doesn't mean that we're going to isolate them on the back pew, or if they're Baptist, you know, Baptist church, we're going to put them on the front pew because nobody wants to sit there, right? We're not kicking them out of church. We're not being rude to them or unkind. But the break in the social relationship is a way to show them the seriousness of sin. And when, when Paul tells them, do not eat with them, he's not just saying sharing a meal is pretty, you know, a pretty important thing. He's saying that, uh, that the, the table fellowship was one of the primary ways in which people of that culture showed love and, and honor to each other. And to turn away a brother or sister from table fellowship was a clear sign that sin is serious. Simon Kistemaker in his commentary on 1 Corinthians says, In the Eastern society, established norms of hospitality might not be broken. To not offer food to a relative, an acquaintance, or a guest could be interpreted as an act of war. Jesus' parable of the friend at midnight indicates that a host would be willing to incur his neighbor's displeasure in an effort to obtain food for his guest. To deny someone that fellowship was serious. And Paul is saying sin is so serious, church, that when we take a person and we excommunicate them and consider them an unbeliever, breaking fellowship with them is one way that we are called to be obedient in order that they might see the seriousness of sin. 
So these are the words that the Lord Jesus has given us in the 18th chapter of Matthew. These are applied for us by the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians because as a church, we are called to be obedient to what he calls us to do and how we structure our church. How we love our people. Because ultimately when we react in such a way biblically, we are showing gospel love that we pray would lead a brother or sister to repentance and trust and faith in Christ. Amy and I have a friend, it's really Amy's friend, and she and her husband attended a church in the Germantown area, and she was unfaithful to her marriage. And her and her husband separated, and she was in another relationship with a man for 10 years. And in that 10-year period, her church never stopped pursuing her, never stopped reaching out to her. They had excommunicated her, and they had called her to repentance throughout that period. And after 10 years, the Lord so impressed upon her heart her need for salvation. She repented of her sin. She left the relationship in that repentance of this immoral relationship and reunited with her husband. And they've been married for many years since. When I heard that story, I thought, you know, if you've never seen a pastor stand up in front of a church and, and speak such church discipline issues, it's, it's awkward when you see them. And when I saw it done at John MacArthur's church and I had to travel all the way to Orange County, California to see it happen. And when I saw it happen, I mean, it was awkward. With guests in the audience, Pastor MacArthur stood up and brought up a man living in there uh, that was a part of their church. And he was calling the church to call this man to repentance as he was instructed to do in Matthew 18. And I remember sitting in that pew thinking, why is this so awkward to me? This is exactly what God has called His church to do. And I realized that it was awkward to me because I had literally been in churches after churches that failed to practice it. And so I want you to be caught off guard if it, if it happens here. It's biblical and it brings Christ glory because of the, of the honor it brings Him and the church that He bled and died for. And as a corporate practice, it reflects the holiness of Christ. And as an individual practice, it also reflects the holiness of Christ. You and I should be living in such a way that we are excommunicating sin in our lives every day. Living in such a way that the things that dishonor God, the love of the world, the idolatry, the, the reviling, all these things, we are called to turn from sin and turn to Christ. And so as a church practices this on an individual or a corporate level, my prayer is that you are practicing this on a personal level. Confessing your sins, knowing that Christ is faithful to forgive you of your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Resting in Him alone, if you are not doing so, church, I pray that you would trust in Him today. That you would rest in Him. That you would know that sin so offends His presence and His nature. And you would cry out to him for forgiveness and hope and know that he has promised you that. 
by dying on the cross and rising from the grave. And that you would believe in him fully for your salvation. Let's pray. Father, we pray these things in Jesus' name because he is worthy of our praise. Because his word is worthy of the things that we've been called to practice in this world. And as Paul is teaching us about church discipline in these passages, Father, I am so burdened to think about the failures of my life as a pastor in years past to not be faithful and biblical like I should have been. Even in a, a different setting where other ministers of the gospel were not being faithful and sweeping things under the rug, Father. It dishonored your name. And Lord, as a church of redemption, we want to be faithful to deal with sin because of your great love for us. The great salvation that you have provided us through your Son and because of your holy nature. And so God, we pray that you would give us boldness and courage as not just elders, but as a church. That we would first be striving to turn from sin and live by faith in Christ day by day. That we would be abstaining from the passions of our flesh, as First Peter says. And as a church, that we would recognize the authority that God has given us so that we might, as a unified community of believers, work together for spiritual growth and sanctification in each one of our lives. God, thank you for the way that First Corinthians has so instructed our church in ways that we might live and practice godly things. And God, we pray for those of here today that need Jesus as their Savior and Lord. I pray that they would recognize Him as the one true Savior that exists, as the only hope that they can have for forgiveness of sins. I pray that they would see and understand their failure and their lack of, of, of spiritual progress and spiritual growth outside of the gift of grace and faith that Jesus Christ provides by His Holy Spirit. Show them the deadness of their hearts and their need for awakening in Jesus' name. And we thank you for